0: Pavel told a story about the mythical greengrocer. Like every other shopkeeper under communism, he has to hang up a sign in his window that says, Workers of the World Unite. Well, one day the greengrocer decides, you know what, I don't believe this. I'm not going to put it in the window just to avoid trouble. Well, trouble comes to him. The government comes by. Maybe they take away his business. His kids can't go to university. He can't travel. He really suffers. But the thing he has gained by showing other people that it is possible to live in truth has been immeasurable. He has won not only a moral victory for himself, but he has spread the word to other people in society who know that the whole system is is supported by lies, who know that if they are willing to join him and accept suffering too, then maybe they can overturn the system.
1: That was Rod Dreher, Gabe Lyons' conversation partner, again this week on Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio. Hopefully you heard last week's show. If not, please visit myfaithradio.com. You'll find it on the Q Ideas show page. But right now, let's continue with Gabe's conversation with Rod Dreher about his new book, Live Not by Lies.
2: We're starting to see, you know, voices, you know, taken off of platforms, deplatformed, um, censored. And and what I think most people don't understand is when that starts to happen, if we don't stand up and push back against that, even for somebody we completely disagree with their ideology, you're next. You know, this is a real threat that we should be serious about no matter what political ideology you must align with. But as Americans, that there is an assault on free speech I think is becoming obvious to
0: people. I hope so. You know, I've been talking to different Christian professors, university professors who are terrified within their own universities. They said, Rod, you don't see it because, you know, I'm 53 years old and I haven't seen a university campus in many years, but... They're dealing with students today, and they say that the students are so different from the way they were when we were in school. Back then, whether you were liberal or conservative, you know, you would clash, you would argue, you would have it out. But in the end, everybody believed that you should be able to say what's on your mind. They tell me today, young people don't like that. They have been raised in a—, in a a bubble, a coddling uh, by their own parents and by the institutions in which they've been raised that tells them that they shouldn't have to put up with any anxiety at all, anything that upsets them at all. So you end up with things that happened, like what happened at Yale University in 2015. Dr. Nicholas Christakis, you can see this on YouTube, a professor there, was trying to have an argument on the quad with some students who were really angry at his wife for saying that Yale should not Tell students what kind of Halloween costumes they can wear. The students got angry at her because they wanted Yale to be paternalistic and tell them you can't wear these things. Well, if you go back and look at this argument they had, there is Christakis, a baby boomer, are trying to have a, a sincere discourse, listening to the students, offering his feedback they don 't want to have anything to do with it they 're shrieking at him, they curse him they 're having these emotional displays accusing him of of uh, denying their right to exist just for disagreeing with them. I think there 's a tremendous generational shift here that a lot of us older people in the church just haven 't wrapped our minds around
2: yeah because you wouldn 't have imagined that could have happened but you're right. I, I find the next generation to be much quieter around these issues, even if they disagree. They're likely not going to talk about it because they don't want to create division or even out themselves with a different view than maybe what the mainstream view is. Uh, this isn't about religion. This is about just saying, hey, there's an alternative viewpoint than what the, the dominant authority might have. And we want to shut that down because it, maybe it's a threat. Yeah. Maybe there's a fear.
0: You know, I, in the book, I write about a physician, a senior physician at a major American hospital, who told me about how his hospital, how his institution handles transgender? He said that they made a, a decision. The hospital made a decision that anybody who comes in wanting cross-sex hormones or surgery to to transition to the opposite sex, give them whatever they ask for, even if, in your judgment as a physician, this is not what's best for them. That they would be better, their dysphoria would be better treated in some other way. Now, this physician grew up in the Soviet Union. He said it wasn't even this bad in the Soviet Union because they they expected us to obey uh, the political ideology in other realms of life, but at least in medicine things were pretty clear. They left, it, left us alone. But now this is happening in the United States. And this doctor said that even on his social media feeds, he only puts the happiest, uh, most anodyne, uh, ordinary, have a nice day things because he knows that the hospital's human resources department is monitoring the social media accounts of all the doctors there. So I mean, and this is just an ordinary thing in daily life, but you see how we're becoming groomed to silence ourselves. And this is also how totalitarianism works. They only have to make um, one or two examples to teach everybody to be quiet. Is there something unique, Rod,
2: in your experience in sort of American life and in the culture that's been created here that I know there's a sense maybe we've lost that. Maybe it's not still here but that there 's there 's something peculiar about Americans that will push back on this in the season ahead if this starts to continue to creep in, um, or do you think we 're so far down the road that there 's not many people that even understand other values to see it clearly and to know how to push back
0: i 'm afraid i 'm more pessimistic about this I, I I remember the in my research for the Benedict option. I read a lot of the work of christian Smith, the sociologist of religion at Notre Dame, and he's the guy who came up with the concept of moralistic therapeutic deism as the true religion of Americans. And uh, he was especially hard on millennials and Gen Z uh, Christians saying that, you know, even those who identify as Christians say that the thing that they're most interested in in life is being happy and having a good time. And uh, this is not something that people grow out of. This is something that has become more general, this attitude towards life and and what is the good life, it's even uh, pretty strongly in the baby boomers and Gen X, my generation, but it's really strong in the younger ones. And if that's the way you judge the world through the, I guess you could call it an anthropology of expressive individualism, that is to say that what it means to live a fully human life is to do whatever you want that makes you happy, and to shake off all fetters, whether it's uh, fetters of religion, of history, of family, anything that keeps you from realizing your own self as you define yourself, then it must be gotten rid of. If that's how people see the world, then we're not going to have what it takes to resist this soft totalitarianism. I'll give you a really frightening example. When I was in Poland last year doing research for the book, Talking to young Catholics in their 20s, people who are still church-going Catholics, they all told me, said, yeah, in 10 years, maybe 20 years, this country will be just like Ireland is today, be completely secular. And, you know, I grew up in the the Pope John Paul II era, and I always thought of Poland as being a bastion of faith in an increasingly godless European continent. But they all tell me, and this was confirmed when I went to other countries in the Eastern Bloc, the post-communist generation wants to be free of history. They don't want to know about what happened, what their parents went through, and their grandparents went through, because they see that as a weight on them that keeps them from realizing the life they want for themselves, which is to be hedonistic consumers. And to be fair to them, their parents and grandparents— don't really want to burden them with the painful memories of the past either. So what they're doing is sleepwalking, like the rest of us, into a soft totalitarian future.
2: Yeah, and you know, you described so well in this book, I wish we had time. I mean, this is, you and I could spend three hours talking about all of all of what's in here. I'm excited that you're going to be with us at our Q&A gathering in November, where so many people are going to get to meet you, and we'll go deeper than what we're even able to do here, as well as have the opportunity for people to ask questions um but you you talk you describe progressivism in religion and and what that looks like as religion progressivism as religion i think that 's a huge topic we won 't get into all of that um but but where it starts to take the turn and this is what to me is so inspiring about you presenting this thesis is that the solution is to live in truth okay it's it's like a very Simple solution when you start to get your head around what it means to live in truth and you describe it so well and you start to give examples of what does it mean even when you're living in a society where falsehood has started to take root, where language and words have lost their meaning and new ones have taken on that meaning. Um, what do you do? Because it can be a very confusing time. And you start at like the most nuclear level. You start with the family um, and the individual living in truth and deciding what what to compromise and what not to compromise. Would, would you just describe a little bit about this idea of what it means to live in truth?
0: The idea comes, first of all, from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. The title of my book, Live Not by Lies, is the title of the final essay he wrote in 1974 before he was thrown out of the Soviet Union. And in the essay, he told people, he said, listen, we can't do anything about this totalitarian government that rules us. But the one thing we can do, at least, is to not say things we know to be false. And he talked about If you will choose to live not by lies, to live in truth, in other words, then you won't go to public meetings and be counted as agreeing with things that you don't agree with. It requires uh, the willingness to sacrifice, even at a small level. I tell a story in there, too, about Vaclav Havel, the Czech dissident who later became the first president of a free Czechoslovakia. Havel told a story about the mythical greengrocer. Uh, like every other shopkeeper under communism, he has to hang up a sign in his window that says "Workers of the world, unite." Well, one day the greengrocer decides, "You know what? I don't believe this. I'm not going to put it in the window just to avoid trouble." Well, trouble comes to him. The government comes by. They maybe they take away his business. His kids can't go to university. He can't travel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He really suffers. Um, But the thing he has gained by showing other people that it is possible to live in truth has been immeasurable. He has won not only a moral victory for himself, but he has spread the word to other people in society who know that the whole system is is supported by lies. And who know that if they are willing to join him and accept suffering too, then maybe they can overturn the system. Uh, and in fact, everybody I talked to over there, none of them believed that they would live to see the end of communism. But they did. And uh, those who were able to live by truth, who were willing to accept even going to prison for the sake of the truth and the sake of of Christ, if they were Christians, you know, they were vindicated. But they were very much in the minority over there. Um, I, I think that. You know, one of the most amazing things to me was to be in Moscow and talking to people who had been part of the rebirth of Christianity in the early 70s in Moscow. I talked to one man who had been an atheist, but who said that he was so disgusted with all the lies of the Soviet Union that he would look around. The only people he saw that had any sort of joy or connection to the truth were these young Christians— and he became a Christian, joined their number, and he said even when we would get together in uh, in apartments to pray and just be together to sing hymns, we knew the KGB was outside waiting for us, but just to taste the freedom that we had together worshiping Christ w- made it all worthwhile. That man later went to prison for, for his beliefs.
2: Hmm. Well, and you describe how when we live in this truth, it does start at the family level, but it moves to small communities. And, and I want to be proactive here with those who are listening who are, you know, learning about this maybe for the first time or or maybe not as aware of some of the things you see coming down the pike that could grow more and more controlling. I think this COVID moment has certainly woken people up to how quickly things can move local, how important local relationships are. In getting along, uh, how important church is and what, defining church and what your church community is and how you're going to work together as a community to serve and meet one another's needs during a crisis. But talk a little bit about why community and forming communities, how that's, that's essentially the strategy now, is we should be forming stronger, tighter bonds. I, I feel like it uh, beckons back to the Benedict option.
0: Oh, I, absolutely. I, I dedicate this book, Live Not By Lies, to this Catholic priest named Father Tomaslav Kolakovich. He was a Croatian who was doing anti-Nazi work in uh, Croatia, in Zagreb, in 1943. He got a tip that the Gestapo was coming for him, so he sneaked out of the country, went to his mom's homeland, Slovakia, adopted her last name, Kolokovic, and began teaching at a Catholic university there. And what he told his, his, the young people gathered around him, these young Catholics, was this. He said, the good news is the Germans are going to lose this war. The bad news is that the Soviets are going to be ruling this country when it's over with. And the first thing the communists are going to do is come after the church. So we have to be ready. Now, the bishops of Slovakia said, oh, you're being alarmist. Don't scare people. But Father Kolakovich had studied soviet communism because he wanted to do missionary work there and he knew their mindset so what he did was organize students into small prayer groups they would come together not only to pray Not to study scripture, but also to talk about what was actually happening in the real world around them and to figure out what they as Christians were required to do to react to it. They also did things like learning the arts of resistance, like how to survive an interrogation. He spread these prayer groups all over Slovakia. It happened very quickly, like within two or three years. When the Iron Curtain fell on that country, the first thing the communists did was come after the church. And the prayer groups that Father Kolakovich had set up became the backbone for the underground church for the next 40 years. I dedicate this book to him because I believe that we are in a different sort of Kolokovic moment when Christian's, Need to find each other right now to open our eyes to what's happening in the world, to talk about how we can be faithful Christians and build resilience and resistance and uh, be ready for times getting tougher. Now, it does sound alarmist. I, I freely admit that. But when you read this book and you hear what these people who lived through it, what they're seeing happen now, you realize we don't have time to waste.
2: Yeah. And you talk a little bit about this idea of faithfulness. It doesn't always mean that you, win over the the authoritarian or, or totalitarian government or leaders, there's something about the suffering in the midst of it. There's something about this faithfulness where we're trusting God with what he's doing through this and what he's doing through us and what he's going to do through the church that also can bring us hope that it doesn't all rest in our hands. We don't have to be the ones to defeat that enemy um, by by taking on the same tactics that the enemy may take on, but that there's something about being a follower of Christ that that pushes us to a deeper level. Can you describe for those listening just a little more of, of what some of the benefits can be for the church, for the Christian to walk through times that may look very different than what you'd have ever hoped for or anticipated or planned for, but that God can use in our own depth?
0: Yeah, I think the most important chapter in this book is the one on suffering, because as all of these people testify that if you're not able to suffer for the gospel, then you're not going to make it. This is, I remember standing on a street corner in Moscow, and I quote him in this book, but this white-haired Russian Baptist pastor, he's an old man now, his father and all the men in their church had been sent away to the gulag by Stalin, but there he is today talking, and he, s- he looked at me square in the eyes and said, you go home and tell the Americans that if you're not willing to suffer, your faith is nothing but hypocrisy. What they meant by that is that you know What they're, they're trying to say to us is that we are so blessed in this country. We've been so free and so rich for so long that we've gotten soft and decadent. We have forgotten that the history of the church from the crucifixion onward, especially in the early church, has been one of suffering and of bearing witness to Christ by our willingness to go even to our deaths if it requires that as martyrs. This is not extraordinary. This is ordinary Christianity. We are the ones in the United States who've become, uh, who have are extraordinary in terms of history and, and that we've been able to enjoy religious freedom and so forth. Uh, we have gotten to the point in our churches and all churches, not just Protestant, Catholic, Catholic, whatever, where the gospel that is preached is a gospel of comfort and ease and therapy. When in fact, we need to hear stories about these men and these women who were willing to go into prison and not curse God for being in prison and not be broken by it, but rather to look at at the suffering they were handed and ask themselves, what does it mean to be faithful here where I am? You know, in this COVID thing, I, I was feeling pretty sorry for myself a couple of months in, because we weren't able to have church at all by orders of our, our government and our bishops here in Louisiana. And uh, I said, you know, I, I really miss church. Woe is me. But then I started thinking about some of these people I had talked to, and this one man in particular, Dr. Sylvester Kuchmeri. He was a young Slovak Christian who was thrown into prison on false charges in 1952, and uh, he was tortured in prison. But he told he says in his memoir that he never would let himself pity himself because that would be the spiritual death of himself, of him, and other people. So what he did was to ask himself, "What does God ask of me now? How can I be faithful right here with these burdens He's given me?" And he used that as a time to grow deeper in his commitment to Christ and into serving other people who are suffering in prison. I get this story over and over again, and this right there is going to be the thing that saves us, that causes us to throw ourselves fully into Christ's arms and to carry this suffering, even if the suffering is not persecution, like to be thrown into jail, but if the suffering is simply not being able to go to church on Sunday, we've got to be able to suffer with serenity and confidence in our hearts. Last thing, um, somebody pointed out to me recently that uh, James Stockdale, he was one of the most famous uh, Vietnam era prisoners of war. He was for years in a Hanoi prison. He was asked in the year 2000, what, uh, who are the ones who made it out and who are the ones who didn't make it of the prisoners? He said, "Oh, that's easy. The optimists were the ones who didn't make it out." The interviewer said, well, what do you mean the optimists?" He said, oh, yeah, they were the ones who kept saying things like, we'll be home by Christmas. We'll be home by Easter. Christmas came, Easter came, they were still there, and eventually they lost all faith. He said the ones who were hopeful, not optimistic, but hopeful, who believed that ultimately their sacrifice was going to prevail over their captors, but who also were realistic enough to tell themselves— it might not happen in the next year. It might not happen for two years, but we will prevail eventually. Those are the ones that came through. That difference between optimism and hope is something really important for the church in America to learn today.
2: Yeah, it's a good word and a good place for us to start to wrap up this conversation, because I think we need that hope that goes so much deeper than what a world around us might say is is happiness or uh, avoiding the pain of, of suffering. And when I hear you talk, Rod, I, I just, I just see this like picture of a man who's just saying, wake up, wake up, wake up, you know, and, and it might sound alarmist to some, but God calls different people to different posts and you have this unique calling to help people wake up. Uh, final question for you. It does feel like a lot of people want to avoid thinking about this. There's a, there's the idea of cognitive dissonance and, that we want to live in a world that makes sense and that assumes the best about intentions and that is hopeful, right? In, in that regard, but in, in some ways can disregard and bury our hand, our head in the sand. And we disregard some real facts around us, some real truths that if we were wise, we would see it and we would prepare for it. Um, What do you think it is about the human that just launches towards these narratives that might, uh, down the road caused them more suffering because they weren't prepared? They didn't take the time to to realize what was staring at them?
0: It's as old as Scripture, you know? I mean, can you imagine the people who are standing around in Noah's day watching the alarmist Noah and his sons building an ark and say, that, oh, you know, the rain is going to stop sooner or later? Uh, I, I think that we just—it's human nature not to want to—, to challenge ourselves, to challenge the the structures we built around ourselves, to tell ourselves that everything's going to be okay. Um, I think that we, I don't know, man, it just, it really gets me down to see so many pastors who are leaving their flocks out there undefended. Mm -hmm. Uh, I talked to ordinary Christians who were wondering what's happened to their kids. Their kids are coming home from kindergarten, first grade and they're getting transgender stuff thrown at them at an early age, and the parents don't know what to do. And they're not getting any real leadership from people in the church, because so many pastors are seem to be afraid to speak these hard truths, to take a stand uh, that uh, will make them hated, perhaps, mm-hmm. in this society. And I'm not talking about being like right-wing extremists or anything like that. I'm talking about standing on basic Christian truth. So... Um, Parents are having to figure it out for themselves, young people having to figure it out for themselves, because the pastors are so afraid to uh, to say things that are going to upset people, because these people, young people, have been raised in a culture that tells them that anything upsetting uh, is to be shunned. I think we need just to get real, not be, not frighten ourselves into paralysis, but rather just be realistic about what's coming and Prepare for it right now. Otherwise, we're going to be swept away.
1: Again, this is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. And Gabe, what a great conversation you had with Rod Dreyer around his latest book. And as dark as things seem to be in our culture right now, it's great to see that people are waking up to the lies and are being willing to stand against them, not just for the benefit of themselves or the church, but for the common good.
2: And I do think this next generation has a resilience to them that when challenged, they do want to think they want to know what 's true they don't they they 're awakening to the lies that they 've been told for a long time, and I think there's an incredible opportunity in this and I just want to encourage you if you 're listening don 't let this conversation depress you don 't make it think don't't don't, don't walk away from this just going, oh my goodness the the sky is falling i I think what we should do as believers is we go look." Let me just take in this wisdom to make sure I'm doing what we've all already been called to do as Christians, discipling my family, discipling the community around me, being a part of a resilient church that's going to be faithful, that's going to tell the truth about sin and about human nature, and is going to be willing to confront that. And let's do the things we've already been called to do. That's going to prepare you for anything that we may not be able uh, to foresee, coming in the future. So for everybody, Live Not by Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents by Rod Dreher. I couldn't recommend this enough as a very important read for communities, for churches, for people to just have a higher awareness. As we talk about it, Q, we want to stay curious and we want to think well. Um, This will help you think well about all the dynamics at play right now in our media, in our culture, and in our conversations. And we want you to think well so that you can be faithful at advancing true good.
1: Hmm, thanks, Gabe. Well, we're out of time for this week. Remember that Gabe and his team offer not just the talks and conversations you hear every week on this show, but also a wide array of past Q Talks, Q Sessions, and other curated content on the Q Media platform at QIdeas.org. And if you're not a subscriber, check it out. Maybe you want to subscribe. I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio. Again, thanks for listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lines. Have a great week.